You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Ayla Ellison. In the realm of healthcare, the Hippocratic Oath is an unwavering guide. However, this principle is traditionally associated with the care of patients. What often remains overlooked is the safety and well-being of the very doctors who pledge this oath, as well as nurses and other clinicians. The healthcare sector has been witnessing a troubling surge in violence within the workplace. Healthcare workers are five times more likely to encounter violence on the job compared to workers in other industries. These statistics, drawn from 2018 government data, paint a concerning picture, and there are indications that the situation may be worsening. Just this year, we've witnessed multiple hospital shootings and instances of physical aggression targeting nurses, physicians, and others in the medical field. While the threat of violence can never be completely eradicated, there are concrete actions and strategies that can help minimize the escalation of an event. In this episode, Anastasia Gliarkowskia engages in a conversation with Andrea Mazzacoli, the former chief nurse and quality officer for Bond Secure Mercy Health. Andrea recently retired after 15 years with the organization and a 40-year career in healthcare and nursing. Together, they delve into the imperative need for a comprehensive workplace violence strategy in healthcare and explore the steps that healthcare organizations can take to develop and implement one effectively. Here they are. Hospitals and clinics are now among America's most dangerous workplaces. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The frequency of injuries from workplace violence in this setting has risen almost every year from 2011 to 2018. I'm wondering if you can talk about what workplace violence means for healthcare workers and by extension, the places they work in, the communities that they serve. Workplace violence is distinguished by many different organizations in varying levels and degrees from the highest level, most severe to physical assault, verbal assault, sexual assault. So there are lots of categories that organizations like the Joint Commission, the International Council for Nursing, have taken efforts to try and categorize and allow people to understand that it it follows the gamut. I know that when we think about it, we think, how did we get here? And a large part of how we got here is that we didn't ever recognize the impact or the nature of workplace violence for many years. And obviously for most of our experts, the sense is that the pandemic rose the temperature, if you will, of what those encounters at hospitals, clinics, and a variety of settings in our healthcare system pretty dramatically. I know that there are social scientists and political scientists who understand and study all the factors that influence what's happening in terms of that kind of dynamic. For healthcare providers and patients, we're with people at the most vulnerable times in the most vulnerable settings that have just inherent in the nature of our shared experience, fear and anxiety. We know that one in every nine patients who present to our emergency departments today 
have a behavioral health or mental health issue and are presenting for some help around that. Today, 40% of nurses, I just happened to be with a state nurses association and we took a random poll as the meeting began and indeed that same number was reported. So 40% of healthcare workers, as you described, and of nurses are reporting having experienced workplace violence in one of those categories that I spoke of in the past year. Uh, You're probably familiar with the most recent report from Prescani that has cited, they studied the reported workplace violence and have reported that two nurses an hour experience workplace violence and assault. That just seems like such an unacceptable statistic. And you mentioned that this hasn't really been taken seriously in the past. I wonder why you think that is. So I struggle with whether it was serious or just a level of it, of understanding. I'll reflect on my own uh, professional journey. I've been a nurse for 45 years. We are attracted to this profession as service workers and to serve and predominantly still a female profession. Many nurses that I've talked about to try to understand in more detail about the experience of this suggest two things. It's part of the job. And a lot of nurses who just felt if I could have done something different, it wouldn't have turned out like this. So they still have a great deal of their own responsibility of how to manage situation, which obviously speaks to the level of training, competence, knowledge about what and how de-escalation and response systems can play in workplace violence. I represented 18,000 nurses and thought I understood their work. I spent a great deal of time understanding their clinical practice and their work as it relates to quality outcomes and didn't really understand even the tip of the iceberg of the degree or the severity of which workplace violence was happening. And so I, I think it's a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. And at that point, we don't have a call to action. And what's happening right now is truly a call to action, both for healthcare leaders, for nursing leaders, and healthcare professional leaders. And I would imagine that in order to see such a problem, you need to have mechanisms for reporting this problem, right? Like how common is it for nurses to report this issue to leaders so that they know that this is happening? You mentioned that ignorance or a lack of awareness is largely a driver of why this hasn't really been prioritized. I think it's one of the reasons that it is becoming more, it is heightened and there is a new level of awareness because what we are seeing is new nurses particularly younger nurses newer to the profession, are reporting and expecting response at a much higher rate than more experienced older in age nurses. So it has gone underreported for a significant period of time. For some of the things that we discussed earlier, I think, as well as the response that the nurses or the healthcare providers received when they did report it. Was it dismissed? 
Were they made to feel as if they were not the victim, but the cause? Was there ever any opportunity for them to be able to debrief or receive any follow-up care or treatment from the experience that they had? So that is a leadership call to action for us to know and understand that we need to encourage reporting the same way we encourage every other healthcare quality outcome. And then we have an obligation organizationally for the appropriate response. So I'd love to talk about what some potential contingencies or strategies are. Maybe you can talk about your work at Bonsecor and the type of plan that you figured out was the best for your organization to protect nurses. So I think the first thing that we talked about, and it came about at Bonsecor when it reached a point where self-reported workplace violence events were in the top three reported safety events for several weeks. And then we saw the pattern of quarter after quarter. Got my attention right away. And unfortunately, the sort of aha and like maybe more than an aha punch in the gut was a situation in which a nurse was probably ill-prepared and ill-equipped suffered harm, and that situation escalated, and a patient suffered harm. And I realized then that we as clinical leaders understand a lot. We follow clinical workflows, protocols, pathways in every way to figure out how do we get blood drawn for sepsis? How do we understand how to get certain specimens to a lab for testing? All those critical flow and patterns, but we don't really understand this. And, we, and it is as important and is as impactful in what's happening in outcomes, both operationally, financially, and clinically, as any other aspect in healthcare. So first, I think it's acknowledgement. I posted that those things were happening in our system anywhere I could and talked to anyone that would listen. You begin by acknowledging, and that allows people a bit more freedom to be able to report to be able to talk about the events. I think having those kinds of partnerships with professional organizations, regulatory agency, and legislation so that there's a zero tolerance policy that is enacted and acted upon. And that means something very different than what we see some organizations responding by putting up we are a, a new, we do not tolerate violence, no violence tolerance facility. It takes more than that and it takes some deliberate actions. So recognition detection, there, there's lots of movement about helping the healthcare team recognize early what risk factors or perhaps what other kinds of factors could alert the healthcare team that somebody perhaps has a potential for or situation has a potential to be escalating. And then there's the response. And I only knew from watching my own experiences that we don't tolerate outdated kinds of response systems in clinical care. But in today's world, for a nurse to be in the midst of an acute violent workplace violence attack, like perhaps being up against a wall or hands around a throat, the idea that they're going to get to a stationary remote panic button or to get to a phone 
or call light is those are outdated kinds of responses that nurses could and should expect to have different kinds of technology capabilities. And then I think there is the sense about training and education. So how do we prepare and how are nurses and healthcare delivery teams not only more able to be alerted to situations, but know how to respond appropriately and have access to resources that can help de-escalate situations? And then I talked about before the recovery. So it's a comprehensive strategy in terms of recognition, response, and recovery. And how long did it take for you to implement something like this, to get maybe leadership or cross-departmental buy-in and to make everybody aware of the latest technology and training? So I think it depends on the organizational readiness when you begin, obviously, but when organizations are primed and know and understand about building a culture of safety, I think it, it happens more quickly and more easily. So our system had a very strong culture and belief about reliability and safety. It is different kinds of partnerships for clinical teams. So security, HR, so it is an interprofessional endeavor that organizations go through to help assure that the comprehensive nature of the strategy can be put into place. And for an assessment, and then becomes the ease. Once you choose the response system, being sure you choose one that's easy to install and easy to use. So I would say six months from time of the aha moment, if you will, of this is really happening and why. We partnered with our security team did a house. It was a, it's a large system everywhere and interesting. And you talked about it right from the beginning is it used to be that we saw workplace violence events in particular areas, emergency department, some of the behavioral health areas. But as our care and the delivery system has evolved into care everywhere and availability and access, uh, we've seen these kinds of events follow the nature of the delivery system as well. But Mm. systems do have to prioritize. So for our system, we prioritized initially the areas in which we thought were the most vulnerable, in which the staff and the patients were at most risk. Because this is about protecting both providers and patients. I appreciate that perspective. I feel like protecting the patients in these situations gets lost. Is Workplace violence most commonly, in your experience, encountered by, or I should say brought by patients or by kind of passersby that gain access to a facility? It's reported statistically that healthcare providers report that the majority of the events are from patients. Got it. So how do you ensure the safety of the provider and the patient? Does that entail having some sort of backup show up and separate or protect the situation? I think there are things in the assessment early on about where and how certain kinds of care are provided, and that is becoming better understood. So would we take a highly agitated patient? It used to be a theory, get the agitated, loud, disruptive patient away from everything. 
that just sets a provider and a patient up for being isolated and perhaps unprotected. So I think we're starting to think differently about the workplace environments and where and how care is delivered. And this is really, it it is about the safety and assuring there is the appropriate level of response and treatment. So we don't want to, we don't want to lose, at least for me personally, the therapeutic relationship. Because even if a patient acted out with a physical response, there's still a patient and a need there that we can't ignore. And so there needs to be a response that from a team that can take the security and safety of the physical threat away. And then what happens both to the provider who just underwent that experience and to the patient who still has an unmet need. After you implemented these new approaches and new ways of thinking about safety, did you hear from nurses, from clinicians that they had been in situations that otherwise would have felt threatening, but because they had been trained or they had these contingencies in place, they actually felt safer? I did not have the pleasure of being able to experience that in my system because it was just being implemented as I I retired from my role as the system chief nurse and quality officer in this past July. But I do know that there the organizations who have implemented the contemporary flexible wearable kinds of devices, nurses have reported and the organizations have reported all kinds of important outcomes like decrease in missed time decrease in actual physicality of the event because what's important is that we give people opportunity to call often and early for situations that they are anticipating or just don't feel right, which then allows a whole preemptive kind of upstream intervention to occur and not a heat of the moment reaction and response. So clearly organizations that have invested in that kind of response system are indeed seeing measurable quantifiable outcomes, both in the nature of the events themselves and the employee's own reported sense of protection. And I'm sure if you have the appropriate reporting and response measures in place, then that will create a virtuous cycle where... The organization encourages more reporting, encourages more preventive, proactive response, and ultimately makes everybody safer. Yes. Safer. And I also believe the investment in the training allows a higher degree of the therapeutic kinds of things to happen. Because when a provider isn't nervous about being close to a patient or being in a vulnerable situation with a patient, which by nature, the work we do is, allows patients to get better care. And what level of employee input did you consider when you were building out your strategy? How important is it for nurses, for clinicians to contribute? I think it's the most important person with their peers in perhaps security, but for nurses and let's call direct care providers, 
to be able to have the ability to talk through the real situations of which they feel the most vulnerable. This becomes as an organizational and as a comprehensive strategy, not trying to put the Band-Aid on every event that did happen, but being able to open the dialogue with our frontline direct care and, and talk about when they feel most vulnerable. And I wanted to talk about weapon surveillance or technology that might be deployed to detect guns or having metal detectors in hospitals. Is that something that you considered and do you feel like that's effective? There are places in which I believe those avenues are, the situations allow that to be better. There are ways in which we get false sense of security by some of those things. And you think about access to entrances and exits of healthcare settings. And then how do we, how many entrance and exits can have those kinds of surveillances? And so I think there's some preliminary work to be done in terms of just the access to the setting and the um, environment in which patients receive care. But I do know that there is lots of new pilots and new strategies happening around that work. Got it. So first, arming the fortress from the outside, making sure that the entrances and exits are safe. But maybe you're saying to some extent, it's not possible to do that to every single entrance? It may not be. Mm -hmm. It may not be. And then I think that's when the assessment of what the strategy needs to be. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on, you you mentioned legislation. To an extent, these efforts can only be so effective when, for example, a, a state's larger policy does not necessarily protect against gun violence. What do you make of the importance of public policy and legislation when it comes to protecting clinicians in the healthcare setting? There, this can be a polarizing kind of conversation. And while there is a component in which criminal penalties are part of the legislative kind of solution, I think the way to begin is to be sure that we can legislate the accountability and responsibility that organizations do have in things like developing plans. You've mentioned there is a requirement that organizations track and understand and disclose incidents of violence and that training and reporting procedures for employees are in place. So I think there are some systemic process kinds of things that can happen, even though I understand and know that many of the actions are leaning towards or speak to where and how the mandated criminal penalties play into this. So maybe even if a state does not have criminal penalties in place or restrictions around gun ownership, things like that, there can and should be policy to incentivize organizations to prioritize the safety of their workers, to have the plan in place, to to train them on how to respond. Absolutely.
Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.